I want to ask this morning, do you love God? I think we all know the biblical answer to that, but I, I want you to really evaluate. Do you really love God? That God says the greatest command is to love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And if you're here in Second Corinthians chapter 5, let's begin in verse, um, let's begin in verse 14. Or let's back up to verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you love God this morning? Let's open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the time to be together this morning. Uh, God, I thank you for this church. What a wonderful encouragement that's been to Joan and I already. God, thank you for all the people who've been serving the meals, uh, getting everything ready, the sound equipment, the chairs out. God, I just uh, pray that you'd bless our time in your word this morning. And God, help us to honestly evaluate our own hearts. God, we all came to church this morning. Uh, We all made an effort. Lord, we're here. I would assume most people would say they love you. But God, is that really how their life is playing out? Lord, I pray that we'd honestly evaluate. And if you speak to our hearts, help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you really love God, then there's two things that will be true. You will have a passion that leads to Christ's control in your life. That's what we see in verses 14 to 17. The love of Christ compels us or constrains us, has the idea of pressure that produces an action. And you will also have a passion for lost people, verses 18 to 21. And so if you don't have those two things in your life, then you don't love God the way you should love Him. The love of Christ, why would I quit smoking? Why would I quit drinking? Why would I not look at pornography? Fill in the blank. Uh, I had a whole church of first generation Christians up in Canada. And uh, we had, I think, the largest group of ex-smokers and ex-drinkers of any church congregation I've ever been aware of. And we have people almost many Sundays that are smoking before they walk in. And we had a lot of new believers who said, I used to do that. They, our, our people didn't get upset. But I'd have visitors sometimes like, you know there's a guy smoking in your parking lot? Like, what do you want me to do? Go throw water on him? I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, that, that's kind of actually a normal thing around here because they're new believers. But over time, the love of Christ would compel them. If they first Sunday, they came in the church and I said, I want you to quit smoking. I mean, if you've ever smoked, you know that it's a big battle. I said, I want you to quit smoking. Just walk out and never smoke again. You're going to look like I have three heads. But the day you love Christ more is the day you quit. It's the love of Christ that compels you. Uh, I led a Filipino guy to the Lord in, in, uh, where I was an assistant pastor. We had visitation. So he would come out on visitation with me. Except that he had a ponytail that reached all the way to the back of his belt. He looked like a kung fu specialist. <laughs> Everybody talked to us. <laughs> and we would talk, and, and I'd have people, and I was an assistant pastor. So here's me, and, uh, his name was Phil. And so me and Phil, and Phil has the ponytail all the way down to his belt buckle. And people were like, I mean, don't you think that that's a problem? I was like, not really. I mean, why aren't you coming out of visitation? At least Phil's coming out. And one day Phil came in and his hair, and now I used to have hair. His hair was as short as my hair back then. But when Phil cut his hair, he did it for the Lord, not for me. And what I want to challenge you is, it's like baking. If you put things, I have I have three kids, girl, boy, girl. When my girls learn to cook, I ate some tough things for the team. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they make these cookies and you bite into it and you chip a tooth. <laughs> you go, this is not like mom's. 
but they're up there looking at you and what do they want to hear? So every good dad, what do you do? You lie. <laughs> this is wonderful, honey. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> you know what you understand? You leave an ingredient out or you add an ingredient in makes a big difference to the final product. You can't add God to your life or leave him out of your life and it doesn't change the product. And the Bible says it's the love of Christ that compels us. So let's look at that first point. A passion that leads to Christ's control. Verses 14 to 17. Paul never lost a sense of wonder at Christ's love. Keep your finger here, but go over to Romans 8, verse 35. Romans 8, verse 35. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We count as sheep for the slaughter. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Corinthians, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're going to see a theme through the New Testament. Paul never lost his wonder and amazement that God loved him enough to die for him on the cross. Look over in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3 verse 17 to 19. that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. No matter how much you think God loves you, He loves you more. God says you will never understand this side of heaven how much God loves you. And God says that love should compel you to live a Christian life. You shouldn't live the Christian life because pastor says so. You should live a Christian life because you're overwhelmed at how much God loves you and how much He died for you, what He did for you on the cross. Go back, if you would, to our text in 2 Corinthians. Look what He says at the end of that chapter in verse 5, uh, chapter 5, 21. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Paul was overwhelmed by the exchange. Paul never, you know Paul, he was a persecutor of Christians. He had a past. And there's a verse in the Bible that says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. Would we all agree that all of us have been forgiven much? But, but it's usually if you got saved later in life, you really understand that. We had a, an older couple came in, they were in their 60s. He was, if you know anything about Alberta up in Canada, oil patch country. Uh, and he was a tough oil patch worker. And they, they would fly him up in the north. They'd land in a Hercules plane. They'd unload the plane. The plane would have to take off so it doesn't fly, doesn't freeze in. And if they didn't set the camp up that night, they all died. That'd be incentive to get the camp going, right? I mean, that's craziness. Like, you, you can't believe that's, like, who, that's a job? <laughs> I get this or I die. That's a pretty crazy job. And there's no, there's no hospital. But that was him. And he would save himself. I wear a size three hat and 44 shirt, meaning I'm not very smart, but I'm pretty strong. And he was very strong. And they came to our church one day and we had a church picnic out at our house. And uh, they're sitting in lawn chairs. I walk up to him and said, Hey, you guys are new here. Just so that you're coming to church. Are you a Christian? And he looked at me and said, Nope. Like, you'd have to know me. That's like blood in the shark tank to tell me that. I said, You're not a believer? I said, Can I talk to you about that? He said, Sure. I said, Well, when? He says, How about tomorrow night? I said, That'd be great. Went over there and they both trusted Christ as their Savior that night. Amen. And he would sit out. And I don't know what you're like in your church, but in my church, everyone sits in the same seat they always sit in every Sunday. So I sat up front because that's how I could tell who was missing. I would sit up front, I'd look out across, and if your seat was empty, and I knew because everyone, you just find your spot over time. And they had their spot. And this Sunday we were singing Amazing Grace, and as I was doing my normal look across the audience, we're singing Amazing Grace, and I come across him, and tears are just streaming down his face. You know, you see that, and then you look, and then you say, if I keep looking, we're both going to be crying. Because Amazing Grace was still amazing to him. You know what can happen in a marriage? Everyone who gets married, the day they get married, you know what they think? I am getting a great deal. 
I'm always at the back with the guy, and, and five minutes before we walk out, I say to the guy, are you sure you want to do this? I don't know what I'd say if they ever said no. Thankfully, everyone said yes. And they got a big goofy grin on their face, like, oh yeah, I want to do this. And he and I walk out, we sit at the front, that beautiful bride comes down the aisle. She's got a big goofy grin on her face. You know what she thinks? I'm getting a great deal. You know what that guy says? I'm giving up every woman on the planet to get this one. And man, I am so lucky. And she's come down there saying, I'm giving up every man on the planet to get this one. I'm so lucky. But what happens years later? If you're not careful, that love grows cold. When people first get saved, are they excited about God? Man, especially if you get saved later in life. You get saved later in life. Man, you love God, you love... But can that grow cold over time? But it never did for Paul. And Paul, for Paul, it was the love of Christ that constrained him. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is the heart of Christian theology. And it produced a passionate love for God and Paul as it should in all of us. If you think back to what Christ did for you on the cross, He was born to save us from our sins. He knew that. Go back to the birth of His record. Why, why was His name Jesus? His name, his name means to be a Savior. So he knows that, and then it comes the time to do it. He brings the disciples up. Have you ever been to Israel? By the way, I think everyone needs to do two things in your lifetime. You all need to go to Israel, and you all need to visit Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, all right? Get those two things on your bucket list. But you ever get to Israel, you get up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when you're there, you look and you see the valley and you see the eastern gate. It's cemented in now. But you know that they didn't bring a thousand guys out of the eastern gate and surprise Jesus that night. The only reason the disciples are still there is they fell asleep. So they had to come down and come up. Jesus is praying. And you remember his first prayer. Father, please. Please, Father, if there's any other way that Jim Tilson can go to heaven, please, I, I don't want to have to die on the cross. And God says, there's no other way. And Jesus says, well, then thy will be done. He comes back a second time, folks. A second time. Please, Father. I'm in the enormity of the sinless Savior, the creator of this universe is going to take all of your sin and all of my sin and the sin of this entire world on himself. Please, Father, is there any other way that Jim Tilson can go to heaven? And the answer comes back, no. And Jesus says, thy will be done. A third time. The Bible this time says, humanly speaking, he's at the breaking point. He has a bloody sweat. Humanly speaking, he's almost unhinged. This under enormous stress, the capillaries near your skin can burst. I mean, if you've ever felt pressure and stress, I've never had a bloody sweat. I mean, on the human side, he was completely human as much as he was completely God. And the humanity side of Christ is overwhelmed. Please, Father, please. Is there any other way that Jim can go to heaven? The answer comes back, no. And Jesus says, thy will be done. And that's why when he stood in front of Pilate, when they blindfolded him, put a crown of thorns and smashed it into his head, hit him in the face and say, hey, who hit you? He knew who'd hit him. But he answered not a word. Had he defended himself at all, they would have been forced to let him go. They broke over 30 Jewish laws to crucify Christ. But he came that day to die for you and die for me. And every time something goes wrong in our life, Satan gets us to question, does God really love me? And every time you wonder that, think of this, he loves you this much. He died on the cross to pay for every sin you've ever done and every sin you ever will do. And God says, you don't have any friend that loves you this much. God says, the love of Christ is beyond your understanding. The Bible says he thinks about you more than the sand. Next time you're on a beach, think about that. Like all the sand. Like, you know what God says? I can't stop thinking about you. When you love someone, when you first got married, did you think, when I first got married to my wife, I thought about her all the time. Think about the other things you love. Hunting. You, it gets, we're getting into hunting season. Man, you think about her all the time. You go scout it out. You get your, get your cameras up. You hopefully you see something on there that gets you excited. And man, this is going to be a good hunting season. You think about it all the time. I used to have women, you know, it's weird because, you know, in Canada, it's a big hunting area. And so I had a lot of hunters in the church. But I have those women that were against killing animals, right? And they'd come up, Pastor, I'm praying you don't get anything this year. 
So I waited till Black Friday. (laughs) Because they're like, how can you get up so early and sit in the cold and just to kill an animal? And then see those same women at 3 o'clock in the morning lining up around buildings to get a good deal on Black Friday. (laughs) And I just say, hey, I'm praying you don't get any deals this Black Friday. (laughs) But when we love it, we think about it. Do you think about God very often? Do you pray very often? If you love God, you do. But you know how many of us can go days, weeks without much thought of God? But the Bible tells you He can't go any time without thinking about you. In the Psalms, He says He thinks about you more than the sand. You're on His mind all the time. Just like in the prodigal son, He's always looking for you to come home. And for Paul, it overwhelmed him that someone loved him like this. And if you remember one of the sayings from the cross, these people have beaten him, abused him, nailed him to a cross, made fun of him, mocked him, put a sign on his cross, King of the Jews. He asked for water, they give him vinegar to drink. You know one of the last things he says from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he did that for me. And he did that for you. I didn't ask him to, and I wouldn't, I'm not worth it. If someone said, Jim, I'll die, I would have said, I'm not worth it. But he didn't ask this morning. He did it anyway because he loves you. Because of God's love, Paul was compelled to serve God wholeheartedly as an act of grateful worship. If you come back to our text in verse 14, the love of Christ compels us. The Greek word here has the idea of pressure that produces action which is true of everything we love. The problem is we love God in a different way than we love everything else. And this is what I want to challenge us this morning. Do you love God like you love hunting? Like you love fishing? Like you love uh, your home, your car, your garden? I grew up on a farm and my dad, we had a farm all H tractor. He planted our garden with a disc and a tractor, an acre garden. What most people call crops, my dad called a garden. (laughs) And it was me and my three sisters. And so that's all my dad did. He would plant the garden and then it was our responsibility to take care of it. I mean, I would snap beans for hours. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I, you're probably like this too. I mean, I grew up, we grew up in a country town. When we went to church, we locked our car doors, not because we were afraid someone would steal our car. If you didn't lock your car door, someone would put a zucchini in your car while you're at church. <laughs> so you're like, man, I don't need another zucchini. <laughs> so that's why we lock our car doors. And so when I left, I do, and I had chickens, and we had chickens, and that was my responsibility. So I had to clean the chicken coop, I had to get the eggs, I had to wash the eggs. I mean, we had a cow, I mean, it did all of that. And when I left the farm, I said, that, in fact, when I left the farm and went to college, my dad sold all the animals and bought a riding lawnmower. <laughs> and I'm like, Dad, why can't we do that when I was home? He's like, because you were home. <laughs> And so I do one thing. I am never having chickens. I am never having a garden until I married a country girl. And guess what sweet tea wants when we get married? I want chickens. I said, eat rocks. (laughs) She said, no, I, I really want chickens. And I want a garden. And so in Canada, we had chickens in a garden and my son took care of them. When my son left, he sold the chickens. <laughs> we still have a garden. And in fact, I had a garden. You know, if you grew up on a farm, manure was never a problem. But when you're not on the farm and you have to... Did you know they sell manure in bags? I was like, I could have been a millionaire as a kid if I knew about that. But I'm telling you, there's only one person on the planet I go buy a bag of manure for. There's only one person on the planet I put a garden in. And I married her. You know what? The love of Christ, or the love of my sweetheart, compels me. In in fact, when we moved to Iowa, very we live out on an acreage. Very first thing I knew we had to do, we have to put in a garden. I went into Bobcats, stripped the soil down, brought in truckloads of dirt. Why? I love that lady back there. But love compels me to do something. And I want to challenge you, when you say, Oh, how I love Jesus, and you do nothing for Him, You're not loving him like you love everything else in your life. You love to hunt. I don't know any hunter that loves to hunt that doesn't go sight his gun in or sight his bow in, doesn't plan where he's going to go, doesn't go get a tag because you're poaching, not hunting, if you do that without a tag. 
And you say, hey, I, I've put a lot of time and thought and effort in this. Black Friday shoppers, man, you, those women got it down, man, right? They go in with packs. You go get the stuff, I'll get in line. We can hit 10 stores if we do it like this. And you think about it, you plan it, anything you love. And yet we seem to be different when we say we love God. We don't think about Him, we don't spend time with Him, we don't do anything to serve Him. That's unlike anything else you love. Take your Bible and go over to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Does it seem weird that you're commanded to love God? Do you have to be commanded to love hunting if you're a hunter? If you have children, moms, do you have to be commanded to love your kids? Although there is a command to do that in Scripture. I mean, if, if you love shopping, does someone have, you love snowmobiling, you love getting on an ATV, uh, you love water skiing, I mean, fill in the blank. You love traveling. Does anyone have to command you to do that? No, because you know why you say, I don't need a command to do that because I love it. But we are in a battle against the devil and he's constantly trying to get your love away from God. And he has the master of options. He'll give you a hundred other things to love. And God says, if you're a believer, Christian, the most important thing you ever do is love me. And if you love God, by the way, I'm, I'm Martha. Do you, you remember Martha and Mary? I, most of my life, I am a worker first, worshiper second. And I grew up working hard, grew on a farm. My dad drilled that into me so I can get work done. But sometimes, why, why do most people not read their Bible every day? Number one reason, they're so busy. They got a lot of work done, but they know worshiping. Remember Mary and Martha? Martha's out there. Work in the kitchen. They got people coming. It's company time. If you have people over your house, we have a lot of people at our house all the time. You know what it's like. It's like game time. We got to get stuff going. And Mary is not helping. She is out sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it's ticking Martha off. I don't, you got to really know the Greek to get all this. But I think Martha walked through the, the kitchen, the living room a few times. You know what I'm talking about? I think she stopped through, hoping she'd catch the hint. I think she's out in the kitchen rattling the pans like, I sure hope Mary catches on pretty quick. No Mary. Stops back out again, just to, Mary, you got a lot going on in the kitchen out here, Mary. How's it going with Jesus? Yeah, good. We got people coming, rattling the pads, nothing happening. She finally loses her mind. She's so mad. She tells the God of the universe what to do. <laughs> she stops out there and says to Jesus, would you tell my sister to get out here and help me? <laughs> and Jesus says, Martha, Martha. <laughs> You're troubled about many things. <laughs> Mary's chosen the most important thing. Let me challenge you. If you become a worker first instead of a worshiper, you eventually will burn out. Have you ever had someone ask you to do something you don't like to do? If you don't like to do it, it wears you out. But if you love to do it, have you just noticed, man, I could do this all day long. It does, I love to do it. That, that doesn't bother me doesn't wear me out. I, I don't mind getting up early to go hunting. I love it. I don't mind sitting in the cold till the sun comes up. Why? I love it. But if you hate hunting, that's like the worst hour of your life, right? And that's why God says, love me first, not obey me first. Are you tracking with me this morning? Because when you love God, you will obey Him. And God says, let me remind you the first and great commandment. And this is the love of Christ that compelled Paul. In verse 39, the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look over in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. God loves you this morning. He just wants you to love him back. And God says, if you love me back, you'll spend time with me because that's what you do with people that you love. You'll think about me because that's what you do with people that you love. And God says, I want you to love me because I loved you first. Look over in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
If you're here this morning and you think God's commands are burdensome, you don't love Him. I would challenge you, if you love to hunt, shop, if you love to travel, it will produce a pressure that, pressure that produces an action. When we sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and ignore Him the rest of the week, something's wrong. Could you imagine if I called Pastor Dennis up and I said, Pastor Dennis, Joe and I have to go on a missions trip. We're going to be gone for a month. Would you come and watch our house? And Pastor Dennis says, hey, Andrew's doing a great job. We're going to have him wherever he is this morning. But he's doing a great job. We're going to have him preach. I'll come. I'll take care of your house. And so he comes over to the house. And if you need sweet tea, she would have a list of instructions typed out for him. I'd say, Pastor Dennis, garbage day is Tuesday. you got to make sure you put the garbage out on Tuesday. He said, Jim, I got that. No problem. I'd say, Pastor Dennis, uh, Joan loves their plants. And we got all these plants around. Here's how much water you should give each plant. And, and just take care of me. He says, Jim, no problem. I got that. Say, Pastor Dennis, our downstairs toilet kind of, you have to watch the handle. Sometimes you gotta jiggle the handle. If you don't jiggle the handle, it can, it can overflow. Just keep an eye on that. He says, Jim, I got that. No problem. Say, Pastor Dennis, we have a cat. You need to feed the, feed and water the cat. And here's where the cat food is. Here's where the water is. (laughs) Pastor Dennis says, no problem, Jim. I got that. (laughs) And then imagine that I come back a month later. And I come out, exactly. I come and look in the backyard and there's a little mound and a cross where the cat's been buried. I go in the basement and the basement's flooded. There's a pile of garbage out front. All the plants are dead. And I go to Pastor Dennis and say, Pastor Dennis, what happened? He said, oh, Jim, I, I love those instructions you left me. That, that part about feeding and watering the cat, I highlighted that part. I love that part. I said, well, then why is the cat dead? Which isn't really that bad. We all know that. But and I said, and, and oh, Jim, that part about taking the garbage out every Tuesday, I memorized that part. Here, just quiz me. Just quiz me. And I quiz him, and he quotes it verb, word for word. I'm like, well, Pastor Dennis, if you got the instructions, then why didn't you do it? You know what I would think? He's not my friend. He told me he'd take care of my house while I'm gone. He didn't do anything. You know what I would think? We're not as close to friends as I thought we were. You know how many of us highlight and underline in our Bible? We memorize whole path. Oh, this is a good part. I love this part. But we never do it. And God of heaven is saying, that's something broken there. I memorized the whole book of James before I got saved. And you can memorize lots of scripture. You go to Awana. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. The first thing, I got saved at 19 under Daco's ministry in a Bible college. And the first thing that changed was all of a sudden this was a great book. All of a sudden it's like, wow, this is amazing. Does the love of Christ compel you this morning? Do you love God like you love everything else in your life? When you love God more, that's the difference between a wolf and a sheep. What's the difference between a wolf and a sheep? It's what they love. Sheep love grass. Wolves love sheep. And God comes and says, there's some of both in many churches. Are you a wolf or are you a sheep? And the difference is, what do you love? Do you skip your devotions but daily check ESPN or the stock market? For to be the workers God wants us to be, it must be the love of Christ that compels us. When you stop loving God passionately, which can happen in a marriage with each other, it can happen with God over time. Generally not new believers, but when you become old believers, I've met people here who said, I've been saved 20 years, 30 years. I sense you still love God, but you have to stay on top of it. Because if you stop reading your Bible, if you stop spending time with God, your love is going to get cold. And God comes to all of us. And as Paul's writing, if you go back to our text in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. When you stop loving God passionately, the great commandments, something else will take its place. And in time, if not corrected, our lack of love will become obvious to others and will hurt more than just us. Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Go over to 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For you're bought at a price. 
Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're a Christian this morning, you're not your own anymore. You can't just do what you want to do. We had an older couple that went to a coffee shop where one of our college and career girls were working. And as she served them coffee, she invited them to our church. And unbeknownst to her, he'd grown up in a Christian home and went off to the oil patch as soon as he could. Left the faith, left his family. Mom prayed for him every day that he would get saved. Married his wife. She went to a united church. She always asked him to go to church with him. He said, no, if I ever go to church, if I ever go to church, I'm only going to a Baptist church because that's where his mom went. So here they now are in their 70s, getting their coffee. And this girl from our church says, hey, I'd like you to invite you to our church. And he says, well, what church is it? And she says, Meadowlands Baptist Church. And his wife looked at him and said, you promised. <laughs> and he said, okay. And they came on a Sunday morning. At our church, I just had a raise your hand invitation. Didn't have them come forward. Just say, if you're here and you're not sure you're saved, just raise your hand and we'll make an appointment. Up was his hand. I walked to the back. He says, yeah, I put my hand up. Yeah, I said I saw that. I trained our people that if I said I see that hand, they knew to leave me alone. And they would usually see who I was walking by. And I usually just walk by him. I put my hand up. I said, when would you like to talk? I said, how about Tuesday? I said, great. I call this my big Bible. I only bring my big Bible if I know it's an appointment. So I take my big Bible. And I go over there with him and sit down on the couch. And he says, you know, I'd like to hear about salvation. And his wife says, I, I already know that, she said. So she's sitting in a rocking chair across the other side of the living room. I sit down next to him and I start going through the plan of salvation. I'm halfway through and I look up and she's moved her rocking chair right in front of me. And she's like, I've never heard this before either. And they both trusted Christ as their Savior in their 70s. And he just said, Jim, I spent my whole life living for myself. He said, what can I do? I said, well, I don't know what. He says, I'm a, I'm a pretty good woodworker, which he was. And so he just, everything he could, he made uh, shelves, he made our offering plates, turned it out of wood. I mean, just handrails. We had a Christian school. I mean, just every day, he's just saying, man, I spent my whole life, it, the love of Christ compelled him. If I had something going on in my house, he'd come over and say, hey, I want to come help you. My, on my wife's 40th birthday, I wanted to build a cedar chest. No way I had the skill set to do that. So I said to him, I'd like to help, have you help me do this. And he says, oh, I'd love to. That's a great idea. I said, but I want to surprise her. And uh, I said, but I, I'm going to need your help. He says, listen, let's do it from scratch. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll photograph the whole thing. We'll start from the actual boards. We'll plane them. He got so into this. And I said, well, then how am I going to surprise her? And he says, well, you just tell that we're having marriage trouble. <laughs> so I went home to my wife and I said, honey, the McMurphys are having some marriage trouble. And my wife's like, really? In their 70s? I said, you know, it's, it happens sometimes, honey. I don't know. They're just having some trouble. She's like, Okay. So I would spend all this time counseling him and the whole time we're building the cedar chest. So we finally finished it. We put a tagline, you know, happy birthday. He was as proud of it as I was. And when I presented to my wife, I confessed. It said they weren't having marriage trouble. This is, he was helping me. I'll never forget the day I got a call that he'd had a stroke. I was in a meeting. I said, Ron had a stroke. And Ron had a stroke that affected him and put him in a nursing home and he couldn't speak. Totally alert, totally understood everything going around him, but he couldn't talk. And we adopted him, especially my wife. My wife visited him twice a week. We didn't have any family up in Canada, and we adopted him like our grandfather. <laughs> We're both going to cry if we think about this too long. And he was in one of those bad nursing homes. You know what I mean? When you walk in and there's a smell, that's where he was. And he loved gardening. So Joan would bring in, they'd have a race on which she'd have the first tomato plant and she'd bring her tomato plants in. And then every so often, she would tell us, hey, we all got to go sing to Ron. And we'd bring our three kids, and we'd all show up, and we'd just sing to Ron in his room. And we had done this once before, and we came in this time, and we're going around, and our youngest daughter, we'd just say, hey, what do you want to sing? For whatever reason, our youngest daughter picked Jesus Loves Me. You know that song? Jesus loves me, this I know. We started singing that song, and Ron joined us. And he sang every word. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And he couldn't say another word. When's the last time you heard that song? Back when he was growing up in a Christian home. And I want to challenge you this morning. 
the love of Christ compelled Ron McMurphy. He was crying. We cry when we think about it. I want to love God like that till I die. <laughs> I don't know if I ever get old. It didn't for Paul. But you know how many times we just get used to it? It's not if we had a quiz, we'd get the right answer, but we don't act like it anymore. We're not serving God. We're not reading His Bible every day. We don't love church. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. That's why you come to church. And if you come back to our text, Paul, as he writes, says, the love of Christ compelled me because we judge that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves. Do you know how many selfish Christians I meet? Unfortunately, a lot of them. I was talking to your pastor. He came over early this morning to feed the cows. I was just commenting, and honestly, you have a very special church. I travel a lot. This, the attitude and the atmosphere you have among here is very special. You probably don't even realize how special this is. And Pastor Dennis said, you know, isn't that sad? It should be this way all across America. It shouldn't be that special. And I would challenge you, if you could grab a hold of this, if every Christian could grab a hold of this, the love of Christ would compel us. I have to spend time, I want to spend time with God. What a weird command, love me. <laughs> no, it should well up within our hearts because we're so overwhelmed what he did for us. I can never pay him back. I have a description of hell that when I think of what hell is like, I'm never going there because Jesus died for me. And when you think about how horrible hell is, that's what our sin deserves. The wages of sin is death, but... Don't you love those buts in the Bible? Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Jesus died for you. And maybe I prayed two prayers before I really got saved. Maybe here in church and go, man, what will people think if they find out I wasn't saved? Man, they'll be happy for you. But there's got to come a point where you say, I can't do this anymore. I can't live for myself anymore. As he says in verse 15, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. And now we know him thus no longer. Do you love God this morning? Do you love him as much as you ever have? When God is not truly worshipped, He cannot be truly served, no matter how talented, gifted, or how much ability you have. I say this to our students all the time. God cares more about your godliness than your giftedness. There's a lot of godly people, and there's a lot of gifted people, but they're not always in the same camp. And God comes and He says, Will you love me? Do you have a, a passion that says, Man, what you did for me on the cross, three times you asked if there's no other way, and you still died for me. I have to start reading your Bible every day. Got to be a good husband. Got to be a good wife. Got to be a good employee. Got to be a good employer. Why? The love of Christ compels me. It's so disappointing when there's no difference between a Christian employee and a secular employee. There's no difference between a Christian boss and a secular boss. That's not how it should be. People should walk into our churches and say, I got to be here. They have a love for each other that's abnormal. God doesn't ask us all to be the same. Daco has a great thing on this. There's a difference between unity and union. <laughs> it says you can tie a cat and dog's tail together. They have a union, but not a unity. And I, he does it far better than I do, but it's a good point. But we can be different and have unity. God doesn't ask us. I mean, we can, Daco's a Packer fan. I'm a Viking fan, but I love that guy. He has a major flaw in that area, but uh, I love him. <laughs> And let me challenge you. Number one, do you have a passion that leads to Christ's control? And lastly, secondly, do you have a passion for the lost? How much does God love the lost? John 3.16, God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only begotten Son. That's how much God loves lost people. The Bible tells us Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. It caused Him to say another saying on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And do you know the answer to that? Us. 
Wow. Our sin is why God turned his back on his son. You, you have no one that loves you like that, and he loves lost people. Can you really say you're a follower of Christ and you don't love lost people? I, I Again, it's heartbreaking to me as I travel America how many churches are really content to have them. They can't remember the last time they invited someone to church. What if that college girl hadn't invited that guy to church that day, Ron? All she said is, hey, we have, we have a church. We'd love to have you come. She wasn't making a big pitch. She didn't know that he'd made a promise that if I ever go to church, I'm only going... And didn't know his wife had been begging him to go to church. Didn't know the wife would turn on and say, you promise. All she said is, hey, would you like to come to our church on Sunday? As she's serving a cup of coffee. That one act caused him to trust Christ as a Savior. I'll tell you another thing that irritates me is when we're not friendly to visitors. And if you have a visitor walk in your church, you know how hard that is? You know how many times I've walked into church and walked out and not one person said hi to me? It was like I was the invisible man. I mean, in smaller churches than this. It's awkward when there's only 30 people and no one says hi to you. And you sit on the pew behind them and they're so busy talking to each other, no one says anything to you. Man, your best prospects are the people that have the courage to come visit your church. You should at least all walk up and say hi. They should walk away going, that is the friendliest church I've ever been to. But what about your coworkers? What about your neighbors? Do you have them over for dinner? Do you do a random act of senseless kindness? I mean, in Canada, snow's a big deal. We got a lot of snow in Canada. And uh, you have 24 hours if you're in town to clear your sidewalk. And every good Canadian knows where the line on the sidewalk is, where your snow ends and your neighbors begins. And no good Canadian is going to shovel one flake of snow that isn't theirs. And I had a bunch of new believers. I said, guys, we need to just do some things that make our neighbors say, what's up with that? So one of my guys bought a snowblower and would snowblow the whole cul-de-sac every single time it snowed. Just so that someday someone would ask him, why'd you do that? I had a guy who worked a metal worker, ran a break in a shop. Came to me one day and said, Pastor Jim, i got to get a new job. I said, why is that? He says, I've witnessed to everyone in my shop. hundred people, five families came to Christ out of that shop because of him. And he had never closed the deal. He'd get all the way and say, Pastor Jim, you need to meet with him. I said, Rick, you, no, no. I said, Rick, you've already done the, No, no, Pastor, I might mess it up. You do it. Every time they got saved, he'd already done all the work. And every time they got baptized, who did they talk about, me or Rick? Every time they got baptized. You know why I got saved today? Because I work with a guy named Rick. And Rick kept witnessing to me and kept talking to me. And then one Rick, day, Rick said, you got to talk to my pastor. But every single one of those families, it was Rick. You know why you have a church? Because someone in the past cared about lost people. But you know why so many churches are closing today? You know how many churches don't have young people? Because we stopped reaching out to lost people. I mean, isn't that the woman at the well? There's lots of lost people in that town. How many lost people did the disciples bring to Jesus? Zero. In fact, they come back and see him talking to... I mean, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Think Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi. I mean, they hated each other. And so they come back, and instead of going, hey, isn't that nice he's talking to a lost person? You know what they thought? What's he doing talking to her? And they used inside voice, right? They said it on the inside, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. And she gets up and leaves. She goes into town, and Jesus says to them, I have meat to, you know, you guys missed it. Fields are wide in the harvest. Laborers are few. She goes into town, and remember, this is the whole point. She says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he's going to know everything. And Jesus says to her, hey, how's your marriage going? She says, I'm not married. Jesus says, well, I know that. You've been married five times and the guy you're with right now is not your husband. (laughs) And remember her comment? Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. (laughs) How do you know that? I just met you. And you know what? The wheels are clicking. You know what she's saying? There's only one person that can know that. And that's why she goes into town. Come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Savior? This has to be him. He's here. He's at the well right now. you got to come meet him. And the Bible says many got saved for the saying of the woman. You know she never went to Bible college? She only knew one thing. Her testimony. If you're a Christian, every one of you has one of those. 
That's all she knew. And people can't get mad at you when you share your testimony. They can't say, oh, that's not true. (laughs) How do you know that? You can't say that. Have you ever shared your testimony? And by the way, I think you need to build a bridge with people. Just have them over for dinner. They don't need to hear the gospel plan of salvation the first time at your house for supper. But just have them over and be normal. I mean, it's funny what unsaved guys think Christian guys are like. We have church softball, deacons versus pastors, but half your team had to be lost people. But we had ball players on our church. We had guys that could crush it over the fence. The first time a believer did that, all these unsaved guys were like, whoa, <laughs> he goes to church? I'm like, yeah, and if you come to church, you can hit like that too. <laughs> guys started coming. <laughs> We did a wild game dinner. We started with, six, it went 61, 22, 80 in three years. I said to all our hunters, I said, guys, I need you to donate meat. We had chefs in the church. I said, we'll prepare it. And I want pictures of the hunt. And we're going to show a, a slideshow at the beginning. And then I'm going to get up and say, every one of those animals was killed by a guy who goes to our church. I mean, we had, we had guys taking down trophy elk every year. I shot moose every year. And we're putting up these pictures of moose and elk. And all these unsaved hunters are like, whoa, they go to your church? Said so the yeah, you come to church, you can shoot one like that too. <laughs> and you know what? We saw guys saved through that. Why? Because we cared about lost people. New believers do that intuitively. Old believers have to be reminded. And Paul comes at the end of this text. It says, verse 20, Now that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The change brought about by salvation is not only an instantaneous miracle, but also a lifelong process of sanctification. Old values, ideas, plans, loves, desires, beliefs are replaced by the new things that accompany salvation. Paul was passionate to see that transformation that had taken place in his life happen to those around him. And I... I believe witnessing, you know, I was talking to other people, you know, we used to do it at 7 to 8 on Tuesday night. And when I, in Canada, I was in a town of 1.3 million people. I could knock on doors all day long, never talk to the same person. That's going to be different in Sheraton. You keep doing that, you're going to irritate the people of Sheraton more than be a blessing, right? But you know what happened as our church filled up with new believers? They were witnessing all the time which I would say is much better than thinking it happens from 7 to 8 on Tuesday night. And every Sunday we had visitors. We had a, a Christmas cantata. And I, and I made a rule. I said, you don't have to be in our choir all the time. If you want to be in the cantata, you be in the cantata. Because if you're in the cantata, then you can go to work at Christmas time and say, you need to come, I'm singing in the cantata. And this is an honest truth. Again, I hope you always hear that when a preacher preaches in this pulpit. This is the truth. Minus 48 actual temperature, wind chill behind that. The only place that was colder that night on the planet was Siberia, and they only beat us by 2 degrees, minus 50. And I said to Joan, who's going to come at minus 48? But because I'm the pastor, I'm going to go. So we show up over 100 first-time visitors. I, and I'm walking up to people I'm like, why are you here? Well, I work with Joe. I, I told Joe I'd come. I do not want to see Joe on Monday if I didn't show up. I heard that all night long. You know what that told me? Man, our people get it. And they're a good testimony. The people they work with like these people. Because you're not going to go see someone sing if you hate them. And you know what they were like? I like these people I work with and I don't know anything. I don't even know what a cantata is. (laughs) But he told me he's in it and I promised I'd come see him. So that's why I'm here. Man, praise God. I can't tell you, we did nine weddings one summer. All of them were living together when they got saved. And new believers would say, hey, you gotta, you gotta go meet our pastor. And I'd always meet with them. They'd come in, why do you want to get married at a church? Why do you want a pastor? And talk through that and, oh, I'm not saved. Hey, you know, the Bible says you can't live together. At least you need to try and stop living together till you get married. And they'd look at each other in my office. I'm willing if you're willing. Yeah, I'm willing. We had people come live with us till they got married in a, we had a tree house. Why? Love of Christ compels you. But if you really love something, you have to talk about it. If you're around me, you're going to know I love the Vikings. I love the Hawkeyes. I love Ford. I love John Deere. I love my family. And I love God. You don't have to hang around me too long and those things are just going to bubble out of me. You just see what I wear. Right? I wear a lot of purple as a Vikings fan, right? 
You see what I drive. I drive a Ford. If you come to my house, I have two signs on both my garages. Ford parking only, right? And so we can disagree on that, but you're going to know what I'm passionate about. If you're really loving the Lord, have you told anyone about Him? When's the last time you invited someone to church? Invited something to some special activity you have at your church? When's the last time you had them over for dinner? You know why? And, and I tell you, Joan and I wrestled with this too and I'm done. I have unsaved neighbors. All Our whole subdivision is all lost as far as we know. Maybe one family. Here I'm the president of a Christian college and three years in I had not had our neighbors over. And God broke our hearts about that. And just like I'm out speaking now and saying, hey, you got to care about lost people. We said, we got to care about lost people. We started having them over. And I, by the way, I'm allergic to cats. Our neighbor loves us so much, they go on vacation and they, I ask me to take care of their cat. I don't, they don't know I'm allergic. And so I go over and feed that cat, water that cat. I mean, who gives you the code to their house and says, I mean, he's like, hey, help yourself to the beer in the fridge, do whatever. I'm saying, hey, it's probably going to be there when you get back. <laughs> I mean, we have an amazing relationship. I've given the gospel to him. I've given him a Bible. He's reading it. I'm hoping, and my wife with our neighbor on the left, Why? Because I just don't want to talk about it here. I want to practice it. I want my neighbors to get saved. And I think God put me where he did on purpose. I'll close with this. The U.S. Indianapolis during World War II had just delivered parts for a nuclear bomb. They were headed to the Philippines when they were torpedoed and sunk July 30th, 1945, right at the end of World War II. Of the 1,195 crew members, about 300 went down with the ship. The rest went into the water. And for the survivors, as they told their story, they said the, the first thing that happened was it became a shark-feeding frenzy. The sharks showed up and just started dragging men and taking them away. They said on day two and going into day three, without any good water, people started going crazy and just started swimming off to imaginary islands that didn't exist. And they said on the fourth day, when they realized they hadn't heard a plane, they hadn't heard a ship, it started dawning on all of them, no one's looking for us, which was the truth. Because it was a a top secret mission, there had been miscommunication and it hadn't crossed anyone's radar that this ship had gone missing. So no one was looking for them. A random sea patrol plane was flying over and saw men in the water. It had the pontoons on it, so it went into the water, landed, and immediately radioed for help. The U.S. Navy sent ships and planes from everywhere, and they rescued roughly uh, 300 people that were left. It's the greatest disaster in Navy history even to this day. And as they interviewed these men who had survived, they said, what was the worst part? And they said, well, the sharks were bad. No water was bad. But the absolute worst part is when it dawned on us, no one's out looking for us because we realized if no one's out looking for us, we're all going to die. And can I say it this way this morning? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's out looking for you. And if you believe in hell like I do, then the people in Sheraton who don't know Jesus Christ are going to go there. Does that bother you this morning? Can you really sit here and say, hey, I'm good. My family's in the row with me. We're good. And you're going to drive by home after home in Sheraton. You're going to go to work with people. You're going to walk through Walmart. Look around. See them as souls. Where are these people going to go without Jesus Christ? And if you walk by a house burning, would you, would you just keep walking by? Or would you be the one pounding on the door saying, hey, get out. Hey, get out. There's a fire. You gotta get out. And would you do everything you could to help them? Man, hell is far worse because it never ends. And aren't you glad someone gave you a chance? I'm so glad someone witnessed to my dad, asked him to go to church. It was a coworker. My dad, when I was five years old, went to church and my mom got saved first. And a couple months later, my dad got saved. You know how thankful I am that guy had the courage to invite my dad? Because our whole family got saved over time. You'd be surprised how many people are willing to talk about it. But it's number one, you've got to be a good example, right? You've got to be the kind of employee that people would come at minus 48 to see you in a cantata because they like you. And they just say, man... 
And then they come to Cantata and hear the gospel. I would challenge you in way too many of our cities in America, there's a lot of lost people and no one's looking for them. There's churches in those towns, but no one in that church is reaching out. And they're all okay with that. At our church, if we went too long without seeing someone saved, we were having emergency prayer meetings. Why, something's wrong. We, we saw people saved on a pretty regular basis. And again, we were in a large community, 1.3 million people. But I do believe good tree produces good fruit. And I believe that if all of us start getting engaged and saying, hey, I've got to be intentional. Who am I trying to reach out to? The only thing worse than being lost is being lost and no one's looking for you. And as Paul finishes in this text, I'm compelled by the love of Christ and I'm an ambassador. I am pleading with people, come to Christ. When's the last time you shared the gospel with anyone? When's the last time you invited anyone to come to church? When's the last time you prayed for someone to get saved? I believe every night you should be praying for someone you know by name to be saved. Minimally, we all can do that. If you haven't been doing that, I hope that your burden is say, we've got to change. We witnessed to a guy for five years, huge guy, tall in every way, tall and big, and he was a mean drunk. His wife got saved. He had a bad Catholic experience. He said she can't go to Catholic church. She can go to your church. She came in. Joan got to lead her to the Lord. We built a friendship with him. He loved us. And one day, I, every time I talked to him, Joan got him to come on my birthday. My birthday was on a Sunday. I didn't know he was coming. I preached on knowing God. Freaked him out. He said, I'm never coming back. That was too scary. But he still loved us. We had him over to our house. Did all kinds of crazy things together. And I was giving the gospel. One day I gave him the gospel. He got mad at me. And he said, and he hung up the phone on me right in the middle of our conversation. You'd have to know me. I dialed him right back. <laughs> Reg, what's up? He says, well, knock it off. How come every time you talk to me, you got to talk about the Lord? Knock it off. I said, listen, we'll talk about baseball next time. I just care about you. I want you to be in heaven with me someday. Knock it off. All right, I'll knock it off. But I care about you. All right. <laughs> hung up the phone. A week later in an absolute blizzard. And when we get a blizzard in Canada, it's a serious deal. He calls me in a blizzard and says, I need to talk to you right now at your office. And he had a great sense of humor. I said, that's really funny, Reg. I'm serious. I'm serious. I said, Reg, like right now, like right now, you want me to leave right now and drive through a blizzard and meet you at my office? That's what I'm saying. I said, Reg, you had better be there. <laughs> I said, Reg, if I get there and you're not there, I will, ne- I will never talk to you again. This will end our friendship. This is not funny. I- I'm not joking. I need, I need to see you right now. I said, okay, Reg, I'm going to drive through a blizzard. I'm telling you, you had better be there. I'll be there. I'll be there. I drive through a blizzard. You drive through a blizzard. You can't see that under your hood. I mean, it took me a half hour to get to the church. I get to the church. I pull in, and sure enough, there's this car. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I walk in my office. He sits on the other side. He says, i got to get saved. And I'm like, why now? <laughs> and he said, I can't handle it. He was such a mean drunk. He would, I mean, he would get drunk every night and he would fix cars. And when his wife's car needed repair, he fixed it and charged her to fix it. That's all. This is a terrible guy. And he gets there and he says, I was so mean to her and she was nothing but nice to me. And he said, this is what he said to me. I can't take it anymore. I need to get saved. And he trusted Christ as a savior and he ended up quit drinking, being a drunk every night to no alcohol at all. A year later, he died of cirrhosis of the liver. None of us knew that was coming. I was at my office. His wife called me and she said, Red's acting crazy. You need to get over here. She said, don't cover that in Bible college, these situations. So I show up and he's in the bathroom locked in. And I, I said, Reg, what's the matter? And he, Whatever. I said, Reg, it's Pastor Jim. Whatever. I came out. I said, something's wrong with Reg. <laughs> and so we called the paramedics. They sent the two skinniest paramedics I've seen in my life. Those dudes walked in. I said, they are not getting Reg on the gurney. <laughs> they opened the door. Bam, bam, bam. They come out. We need the police. <laughs> they call the police. The police sent the two biggest dudes I've ever seen in my life. And they said uh, to Helen and I, they said, you need to step out. We're going to have to get him on the gurney. So we step out. And we were, bam, smash, crash, smash. And they finally strap him to the gurney and get him in. Because he's out of his mind. If you know anything about uh, cirrhosis of the liver, it just makes you crazy. And he's strapped down, and he's the cheapest guy I've ever met in my life. And he's like, I'll give you a million dollars if you let me out of here. So that's when I knew you were out of your mind, Reg. 
But that became a downward spiral. He was such a drunk, they couldn't give him a, a liver transplant and he died. But in that last year, he came to church every Sunday. Love of Christ compelled him. But you know what? He wouldn't have gotten saved if his wife hadn't kept witnessing to him and witnessing to him. And even though he was terrible and horrible, she kept loving him and giving back to him. And I could go on and on. I could tell you story after story of how people got saved, but it was often people in the church, not me, who lived the Christian life and said, we care about lost people. And I would say to this church, you need to care about the lost people of Sheraton. You're their only hope. This is God's plan, the church. There isn't a plan B. You're the plan to reach this community with the gospel. And the only thing worse than being lost is if you're lost and no one's out looking for you. Will the love of Christ compel you to live for him? And will you care about lost people? It did for Paul. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I pray that if you spoke to our hearts this morning, God, if we know there's things in our life that we haven't been dealing with, Lord, may we be overwhelmed with the love you had for us on the cross, that you want to give us a victory, that you want to help us. And God, as we evaluate how we love other things in our life, do we love you the same way? And also, do we care about the lost people around us? Are we willing to reach out? Are we willing to do what we can? Are we willing to have people over for dinner? Are we willing to shovel a little extra snow? Are we willing to cut some extra grass? Are we willing to to be that employee that's just a friend to those around us so that some point down the road we can share the gospel? God, I pray that you'd help us to leave this service caring, thinking about who can we even reach out to this week? Who can we do something nice for this week that isn't saved yet? And God, may that love for you, compel us to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.